Well, good evening, folks. Um, If you would open your Bible at Titus, you'll see the section. You know, this is a, a, on Sunday morning, we did Hebrews in a morning, you know, flying over it. These studies in Titus will be a very different beast. We will be going down into the text and working with it very closely. Um, And that really is the foundation of all uh, biblical knowledge that we really are true to the text. So uh, open at Titus there, please, and we'll just read our section, which is chapter one, verse five through to verse nine. Titus chapter one, verse five. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Amen. Um, in, our, in our introductory session on Titus, I suggested to you that the theme of the letter was gospel-generated godliness in the people of God. That's lifted from the first four verses. We thought about the purpose of Paul's ministry to further the faith of God's elect and to see their knowledge increase, the knowledge that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. So that's the phrase I'm using, gospel-generated godliness or goodness in the people of God, lives that are being increasingly transformed for the good by the truth of the gospel. But I want to ask you a question about that then. How in practical terms does that become a reality? This gospel-generated godliness in the life of the people of God. How do the people of God develop in godliness? What measures need to be put in place? What means does God use to see this become a reality in the lives of his people? I wonder what you would say in response to that. What do you think is essential if that's going to happen in the lives of God's people. Well, it's interesting to see where Paul starts. He starts with 
the importance of elders. In fact, the remaining verses of Titus chapter 1 are completely taken up with the subject of elders. Here is God's design, God's provision. God's people will progress in godliness, in goodness, in the context of community, under the leadership, the care, the instruction, the protection of godly elders. And Paul addresses two fundamental issues in respect of these essential elders in chapter 1, verses 5 to 16. He tells us what sort of men these elders are to be. That's the focus of the passage we just read, verse 5 to verse 9. And he then tells us what their rule involves. And that's the purpose, the focus of the next section, verse 9 again to verse 16. And you'll notice actually that verse 9 is a hinge verse moving from the type of men these prospective elders are to be to the function that they have in a local church. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So Paul is moving from the type of men they are to be to the role that they've got to fulfill. And we're going to take two evenings on the subject of elders as we work through the remaining verses of Titus chapter 1. And I would say this, this is a vital issue for any church, and it is a vital one for us in Castlereagh Fellowship. If this work, if this Christian community, if this local church is going to be healthy, and productive and good works. We thought about that last week. And if it's going to be protected as it moves forward, then it will require men of the caliber set forth in these verses. One of the greatest things that you could pray for daily for Castlereagh Fellowship is for God's continuing provision of godly leadership. That should actually be right at the top of our list of prayerful priorities for Castlereagh Fellowship. I always pray for Castlereagh Fellowship and I begin with leadership, not because I think leaders are any more valuable in themselves, but the role they play is such of such importance. It is like the rudder on the ship. So I hope that these two evenings will maybe drive up your prayerful priorities, interceding for godly leadership. So again, I want you to 
look very carefully at the text now because I'm going to take you through it, the structure of it. The first thing, it's very small, isn't it? The first thing that uh, we need to notice is the task Titus is to complete. It's very straightforward there in verse 5. Paul says, the reason I left you, Titus, in Crete, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That's the task Titus has in front of him. But then we read the criteria that Titus is to apply. And that's verse 6 to verse 9. And we can then subdivide this further. The first thing he says is that this prospective elder, there must be blamelessness in the elder's home situation. And he breaks it down. He mentions the man's relationship with his wife and with his children. And then we come to a second area where blamelessness is the criteria. And that's blamelessness in the elder's character and conduct. That's verse 7 and 8. And it's interesting how he further breaks that down. He, he gives five negatives. What the elder must be free from. And then he follows that by giving six positives. What the elder must be marked by. So the first area is the elder's domestic situation, his relationships there. The second area is blamelessness in respect of his character and his conduct. But there is a third area as well in verse 9, and that is faithfulness in the elder's relationship to the truth. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine, that's feeding, and so that he can refute those who oppose it, that's guarding. So I'm just going to leave that up there, because that's a very detailed breakdown of the thought flow, the structure of the passage that we are thinking about. So let's begin with Titus's task you can deduce fairly from verse 5 that Paul was obviously with Titus on the island of Crete. But for whatever reason, we're not told why, for whatever reason, Paul had moved on, but he had left Titus with a clear brief. He was to finish the task of appointing elders in every town. This was Paul's method for seeing the gospel take root in lives and in communities. The gospel was preached. Individuals responded. They formed together in little groups in their respective communities. And the foundations of local churches were laid. 
Then, after a period of time, men who had shown themselves to have advanced in the faith and to have gained the confidence of their brothers and sisters were to be appointed to a position of leadership, recognized as elders within the community. And we see this illustrated so clearly. I want to, I want to show you this in Acts chapter 14. Just to let you see that this, this is the method for seeing the people of God put into a context that will help them to develop in godliness. This is the pattern, the biblical pattern. Acts chapter 14, we call this Paul's first missionary journey. And we're going to join it on the return leg. Okay? Paul has been to different places. Pisidium, Iconium, etc. Been to different places. But he's now making his way back. So he's, some time has passed since he preached the gospel in these places, and he's now making his way back to the church at Antioch. Let's see what it says. Acts 14, 21. They preached the gospel in that city uh, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. That's where they'd been. Strengthening the disciples... And encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas, listen, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. And with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Good evening, folks. Good to see you. So you see what's happening there, guys. I don't think it can be any clearer. The gospel has come to these areas that never heard it before. People have got saved. They've responded. They're, they're meeting together to support one another in their newfound faith. And when Paul comes back to visit them, he appoints elders in each church so that those communities will be protected and will go forward under the care, instruction, guidance of those elders. And let me just make a comment or two on this before we leave it. You will notice the plurality of elders in every church situation that is described in the New Testament. And what wisdom there is in that God-given arrangement where there are a group of elders. There is benef the benefit of shared wisdom and experience. There is the benefit of mutual encouragement and accountability. And there is the benefit of specialism in specific areas of giftedness. It is quite simply madness to place all authority in or all responsibility on one individual. 
And just think about it for a moment. What if that individual is struck down with illness or they die? What if they fall morally or depart from the faith? What if that individual develops what I would call diotrophies syndrome? Read the letters of John, where a local church has been turned into a personal empire. Collective leadership brings with it built-in safeguards against these vulnerabilities. I think John Stott is right when he says this. The main way, the main way to consolidate the life of the church is to secure for it a gifted and conscientious pastoral oversight. So that's the task that Titus has been given to finish this job of appointing elders in each town where believers are meeting. But we come then to think about what is the heart of the passage, the criteria that Titus is to apply in the selection and appointment of these prospective elders. If Paul is clear on the need for believers to be in the care of elders, he is equally clear about the sort of men these elders are to be. And I would draw your attention to a very important word in this section. I wonder, did you notice it? It's the word must. You get it in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 9. I think that's pretty clear. And you also get the word not five times. And each time it's the idea of must not be. Must not be. Must not be. Paul is unequivocal. Unequivocal, if I could say it. Unless these qualifications are met in the man under consideration, the appointment is not to be made. He is unqualified or disqualified for the rule. So what sort of men are Titus and the believers at Crete to look for as potential elders? And as we saw earlier, Paul focuses on three areas. The man's home and family life, his character and conduct, and his relationship to the truth. So I want to offer some comments on each of those. Another key word, of course, in the passage, and you'll see it up there, it's the word blameless. And it occurs twice. The elder is to be blameless, both in respect of his domestic situation and his character and conduct. Now, please notice, Paul does not say the man is to be sinless. Paul is not saying that the elder is flawless 
or faultless. That is not the idea of the term. It's the idea of being irreproachable, unimpeachable. The man is a man of unquestioned integrity. That's the idea of it. It's not holding up sinless perfection. Otherwise, there would be no elders. And Paul applies this test of blamelessness, being free from accusation, a charge that will stick. He applies it first to the man's family relationships. This is his proving ground. What is his marriage like? And it's now broadly accepted that an elder must be blameless. I mean, the NIV, the 2011 NIV, the most recent version, says faithful to his wife. It's very possible that your version will say the husband of one wife. It is generally accepted that the sense of the term that Paul uses is the elder must be a one-woman man. It's the idea that there is, there's no question mark that can be drawn alongside the man in his role as a husband. And it goes a heck of a lot deeper than just being the husband of one wife. You could be the husband of one wife and be a flirt. Uh, whatever. It's not, it's not a mathematical statement. It's coming to the heart that the man must not be unfaithful. He must not be flirtatious. He must be true to his wife and his marital vows. That is what characterizes this man in his most intimate relationship. Because you can be absolutely sure if he fouls up there, he will definitely let the church down. And then secondly, a man whose children believe. Oh dear. Is Paul insisting that any prospective elder must, well, must have children for starters, and he must have children who are all Christians? Again, you'll notice if you go to the, if you're using an NIV, it renders it must, must have children who, whose children believe. You'll notice the little footnote at the bottom of the page. Or children who are trustworthy or faithful. Again, there is now general consensus that, that Paul is saying that the prospective elders' children must be faithful in the sense that Paul elaborates on. In the rest of the verse. He hasn't finished. They must be faithful. And not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Actually in the parallel passage. In 1 Timothy 3. Where Paul again lists the qualifications for elders. For Timothy's benefit on the, uh, on the city of Ephesus. What does he say? 1 Timothy 3 verse 4. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner 
worthy of full respect. The point I would suggest is pretty obvious. Do not appoint a man to manage God's household if either his loyalty to his wife or his competence to control his children is questionable. Appoint in haste, repent at leisure. These are not suggestions that Paul is making. They are requirements. So next, Paul turns to another area in which the prospective elder is to be found blameless. Not sinless, but free, unimpeachable. And that's the area of his character and conduct. So really everything about him. And Paul begins with five negatives. Five characteristics which must not be found in this man. And it's important that we do note all five of them individually. But as we do that, also allow them to paint the picture of the type of Christian man that we're talking about or are not talking about in the first instance. So I want to read verse 7. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. An elder must not be overbearing. That is, a stubborn, self-willed, arrogant, contentious man. He must not be quick-tempered, headstrong, explosive, unpredictable. He must not be given to drunkenness, reckless, careless, indulgent. He must not be violent, pugnacious, intimidating, controlling. And he must not be a pursuer of dishonest gain, an exploiter, a user, an individual out for himself. If I could put it into more succinct terminology, beware the appointment of Mr. Pushy, Mr. Angry, Mr. Boozy, Mr. Bully, and Mr. Greedy. And you'll notice, if you spend time thinking about the five qualities that must be absent from the man, you'll see that Paul is putting his finger on the man's character in respect of his pride, his temper, his indulgence, his use of power, and wealth. Those are pretty fundamental areas. Does the man display a lack of self-mastery in any of these areas? A man is not only 
disqualified if he cannot control his domestic situation. He is disqualified if he cannot control himself. Steer clear of such men, church. So if that is the type of man that Titus and the church are not looking for, what sort of man are they looking for? And Paul gives six positives. And notice the word must again. He must be hospitable. One who loves what is good. Who is self-controlled. Upright. Holy. And disciplined. Again I stress... These are requirements, not suggestions. So let's go again, noting these individual qualities, while also allowing them to construct a picture, a profile of the man as a whole. He must be hospitable. That is, he's relational. His life is accessible. There, there is a porous border between home and church with all of the challenges that that brings. He loves what is good. Remember, that's our key phrase in Titus, eight times, what is good. You know, he, he is productive in good works. He's appreciative of them. He's supportive of them. He is self-controlled. It's another key term in Titus that you get five times. And the particular word that Paul uses here, the emphasis is on his thoughtfulness, his measuredness in his interactions. He's not rash or extreme or shallow. He must be Upright. That is marked by integrity and straight in his dealings with other people. He must be holy. That means he's devout, sincere, living to please God above everything else. And sixthly, he is to be disciplined. There's a steadiness, a reliability, a consistency stamped over his life. I like what one commentator, George Knight, has written. Paul has sketched out with these few well-chosen words the characteristics that must mark an overseer. He must love people and equally love virtue. He must be wise and prudent, must live in accordance with God's law, must be devoted to God and seek to please him, and must manifest genuine self-control. With this blend of characteristics, the Christian leader is equipped by God's grace, to exercise the kind of oversight 
that a steward in God's house, the church, should exercise. And, and I would want to add this as well. In the church, character is more important than gift. I couldn't help think that every time I use the term unimpeachable, I think of a certain U.S. political figure. And I can tell you this, there's a lower bar to be the president of the United States than there is to be an elder in any local church anywhere in this world. Do not choose only or even chiefly on the basis of an individual's ability, but by the person that they are. And how often has that mistake been made in the church of Jesus Christ? Somebody has a certain skill, maybe that has eked them out a successful career, and on the basis of their functionality, they are appointed to a position of oversight of God's people. Never, never, never. But you'll notice that Paul has not finished yet. There's one further qualification that must be met. And it straddles who the elder is and what he's required to do. I'll read it again in verse 9. He must, notice our word again, he must. This is not score two out of three and you're okay. This is three tests that must be applied. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Here's the question you must ask of any prospective elder. What is this man's relationship to God's truth? Is he marked by faithfulness to God's word? His revealed truth, the trustworthy message, sound doctrine. Are there any question marks over his orthodoxy? But more, Paul is saying more than that. He says he's someone who holds firmly to, who clings to, is devoted to the truth. This is a man who is being shaped by the word of God. And he has to be that sort of individual. For he has a twofold responsibility in relation to God's word. He's to teach the truth. He's to encourage, to build up, to strengthen and to comfort God's people. You can only do that if you know God's truth. And, and we'll come to this next week, he is to refute error. And he is to rebuke those who promote error. You see, the elder is not simply someone who enjoys a grasp of the truth. 
He's not just some sort of meditative person who can share a nice devotional thought with you. No, the elder that Paul is talking about here, he knows the truth and is equipped to use the truth. If elders are not devoted to Scripture, they are not qualified to take the role of elder or to serve in that role. And just as with the qualifications in respect of family situation and character, this too is non-negotiable. So let me come back to where we started tonight, folks. How are God's people to have their faith furthered and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness increased? Verse 1. How are they to do it? Godly leadership is an absolute priority. Think again of the situation on the ground on the island of Crete. People had been drawn to Christ from the surrounding ungodly culture. Always liars, lazy gluttons, evil brutes, said one of their own. People have come to Christ from that cesspool. The gospel has produced converts. But to protect those converts and to promote their spiritual progress, they needed assistance. They needed the teaching, the example, the care, and the protection of godly leadership. Do you think we require anything less today? In our situation, in our surrounding ungodly culture. And if you agree with me that our need is the same, then let me leave you with a couple of challenges following on from this. Number one, I say it again. Pray for the existing elders in Castlereagh Fellowship. But not only in Castlereagh Fellowship. The Christian landscape is in large part shaped by the spiritual health of the elders in local churches. And as you pray for elders, and your elders in particular, follow their lead and example. That is the direction of Scripture. A template is being provided of what God wants to do in a life. And secondly, I would say this. Pray for the development of new elders. Eldership is not for everyone. Certainly not. God calls and equips certain men for the task. But I address this to our men in general and to our younger men in particular. Are you becoming the individual that God would have you be in your domestic relationships? 
Are you maturing in Christian character and conduct? Are you advancing in your knowledge of the Word of God? For God will only call, and the church dare only appoint those of whom that is true. The future of local churches and the future of Castlereagh Fellowship depends in large measure upon the decisions that the generations that are coming through make in respect of that. I leave that with you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.